The following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Good morning and welcome to FBC this morning. Let me also uh, encourage you by reading a portion of Scripture, just a little extra Scripture reading this morning before we begin with our song service this morning. Our reading, this reading is found in Psalm 37. Uh, Somebody uh, shared, I shared this with somebody uh, a few days ago and uh, then my wife mentioned it to me as well and so I thought it would be good for us just to read a few verses. The 37th of the Psalms, the Psalm of David. Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity. For they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on His faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord and He shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him and He shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Do not fret because of Him who prospers in His way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret, it only causes harm. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. For yet a little while, and the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you will look carefully for His place, but it shall be no more. But the meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. The wicked plots against the just and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him, for he sees his day is coming. The wicked have drawn the sword and have bent their bow to cast down the poor and needy to slay those who are of upright conduct. Their sword shall enter their own heart and their bows shall be broken. A little that a righteous man has is better than the riches of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. For the Lord knows the days of the upright, and their inheritance shall be forever. They shall not be ashamed in the evil time. And in the days of famine they shall be satisfied, but the wicked shall perish. And the enemies of the Lord, like the splendor of the meadows, shall vanish. Into smoke they shall vanish away. The wicked borrows and does not repay. But the righteous shows mercy and gives. And I'm going to pause the reading right there for now this morning. Deuteronomy 32 this morning. If you'd turn there and follow along as I read Deuteronomy 32. We're in the middle of the chapter this time. The Bible tells us in Colossians 3 that we use our songs and hymns and spiritual songs to teach and admonish one another in the Lord. And that was is not a new thing in the church, in fact, this song of Moses that we were looking at was meant to teach and to convict the people of Israel when they departed from the way in which they were supposed to go, so a teaching song. Psalm, or rather, Deuteronomy 32, please, starting in verse 28. For they are a nation void of counsel, nor is there any understanding in them. Oh, that they were wise, that they understood this, that they would consider their latter end. How could one chase a thousand and two put ten thousand to flight unless their rock had sold them and the Lord had surrendered them? 
for their rock is not like our rock, even our enemies themselves being judges. For their vine is the vine of Sodom and of the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of gall. Their clusters are bitter. Their wine is the poison of serpents and the cruel venom of cobras. Is this not laid up in store with me, sealed up among my treasures? Vengeance is mine and recompense. Their foot shall slip in due time. For the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things to come hasten upon them. For the Lord will judge His people and have compassion on His servants when He sees that their power is gone and there is no one remaining bond or free. He will say, where are their gods, the rock in which they sought refuge? Who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering? Let them rise up and help you and be your refuge. Now, see that I, even I am He, and there is no God besides Me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. Nor is there any who can deliver from My hand. For I raise My hand to heaven and say, as I live forever, if I whet My glittering sword and My hand takes hold on judgment, I will render vengeance to My enemies and repay those who hate Me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the heads of the leaders of the enemy. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people, for He will avenge the blood of His servants and render vengeance to His adversaries. He will provide atonement for His land and His people. So Moses came with Joshua the son of Nun and spoke all the words of this song in the hearing of the people. Moses finished speaking all these words to all Israel and he said to them, Set your hearts on all the words which I testify among you today, which you shall command your children to be careful to observe all the words of this law. For it is not a futile thing for you because it is your life. And by this word you shall prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to possess. Just note, please, that's not talking about eternal life. You don't get life by keeping the law. You never got life in God's economy by keeping the law. Never, ever, ever. Please be sure that you understand that. This is speaking about living long in the land which you go over to possess, that is, having a long physical life, having a prosperous life. If you obey God under the Mosaic Covenant, you would live long and prosper. If you did not obey God, you would live short and uh, be in poverty, or you'd be kicked out of the land. Verse 48, Then the Lord spoke to Moses that very same day, saying, Go up this mountain of the Abarim, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, across from Jericho, View the land of Canaan, which I give to the children of Israel as a possession, and die on the mountain which you ascend, and be gathered to your people, just as Aaron your brother died on Mount Hor and was gathered to his people, because you trespassed against me among the children of Israel at the waters of Meribah, Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zin, because you did not hallow me in the midst of the children of Israel. You shall see the land before you, though you shall not go there, into the land which I am giving to the children of Israel. May God spare us, leaders and sheep, from ever failing to hallow Him in His sight. Amen.
May God bless that reading of His Word and convict us with it this morning. You know, I suppose when you come to a passage of Scripture like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where we'll be this morning, please turn there, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that if you are not familiar with the Christian faith, by familiar I mean intimately familiar, I mean familiar in the sense of knowing Christ, knowing the Lord, having the Spirit of God dwell in you, you will look at this portion of Scripture and say, that is very strange. What God does with people who come to faith in Christ is He gives them a number of gifts. Not, not spectacular uh, outward manifestations of things, but inward change that sometimes seems to be very slow in manifestation or uh, it starts out very immature and it grows. And that, that, that transformation that God works in us in the Lord is called regeneration. He does a number of other things for us too, external to us, but that have an implication for us. I mentioned some of them in my prayer. If you come to faith in Christ, He forgives all of your sin. He justifies you by constituting you to be righteous before Him based on the righteousness of Christ. Hey, Dwayne, could I ask you a favor? The fan that's above my head, could you just turn it down just a little bit? I like the airflow, but it's blowing my pages. I can't afford to lose my place here. <laughs> um, so, He gives us those external gifts, righteous, uh, righteousness, forgiveness of sin, all of that. He brings us into the body of Christ. But He also does something inside of us, transforming us by what's called regeneration. In a moment, when you come to faith in Jesus, He imparts to you spiritual life that you did not have before. And so, instead of being dead in sin and blind to the Word of God, your eyes are opened and you're made alive. You look at this and you see something entirely different. People who testify that they've come to faith in Christ have said, especially later in life, have said, I, I had to change my whole way of thinking about everything. Right? You're a, a brand new creation in Christ. And another thing that God does when you come to faith in Christ is He causes you to understand and embrace the Word of God as it is in truth, not the Word of men, but the Word of God. So what my goal is this morning is to approach the text of Scripture as it is the Word of God. And those of us that are believers in Christ know that. We, we resonate with this. This book, when, when, when it, when it uh, vibrates, we vibrate with it. You know, I mean, it's just we feel it. It's true. We know that it comes from God. And uh, despite how out of step it may seem to be with the world, it is the truth from God. And, I mean, He's the Creator of all things. Uh, he's the designer of marriage, of church, of men and of women, of children. He knows all of that stuff. He's given us here some instructions as to how to conduct ourselves as difficult as they may seem to be to kind of understand fully. But we can understand them and get the basics at least. And so that's what we hope to do uh, this morning as we look again at 1 Corinthians chapter number 11. 
Now, in part one of our message on 1 Corinthians 11, we summarized the various differences that Paul mentions between men and women. And we just kind of went down through verses 2 to 16 and, and looked at those. We're going to go through some more of that today. So it's not going to be the same stuff as last week, but it's going to be the same general topic as last time. So uh, hang on with me and let's uh, begin. We have a lot of material here uh, to do. We trust the Lord will help us. And with that attitude under, underneath that we do embrace God's Word as God's Word. The, world's, the world is not going to understand this. We just, we just chalk that up. I mean, we just write it down. It's, it's there. It's just the fact of, of life. They're not going to accept this. It's going to be mystifying to them. They're going to be offended by it. But that's okay. We are not that anymore. We have been rescued from that blindness and spiritual death. Uh, Let's read again, starting in verse 2. Now I praise you, brothers, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to know, the word but there, uh uh-oh, something is not quite right with the church in Corinth. They're keeping the traditions, but I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, for that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. Verse 6, For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn, but if it is shameful... For a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. Verses 8 and 9 are explanatory to verse 7. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. And there is the issue, folks. The symbol of authority, that picture of authority, that's what the head covering meant and means in the book of Corinthians and in their context. Okay, It's not just a hat or a shawl or a veil, but it's a symbol of authority. And then he says enigmatically here, because of the angels, we'll look at what that means this morning, Lord willing. Nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. For as woman came from man, even so man also comes through woman, but all things are from God. Judge among yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. Now, just follow on from what I said earlier. This is God's Word. This is not man's Word. Some have tried to take this and say, well, this is just Paul. Just Paul pontificating, and we don't have to uh, take that as gospel truth. Well, news for you, uh, you'll see, maybe I'll mention it again later, or maybe I won't since I'm going to now, but 1 Corinthians 14, 1 Corinthians 14.37 says, If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, a self-estimation of being a prophet or spiritual person, Let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. They are the commandments of the Lord. This is the word of the living God. Now, we're dealing with this passage of Scripture here. A lot of questions about it. One question, what about the head covering? Is it different than hair? Is it, Or is it the same thing as hair? Because verse 
15 says, If a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. For a covering. The head covering and the hair, I am telling you, are different things. Okay. First of all, the word for covering in verse 15 is not the same as the word for covering used throughout the rest of the passage. Unfortunately, these English translations have obscured that a little bit by making the same English word correspond to a different Greek word. Uh, you, you can't always solve that problem, but uh, there, is, there is a difference there. The head covering seems to be something removable while hair is fixed and should be something of distinct length and style for men and women. The confusion comes, as I indicate, from verse 15. Um, that word for covering in verse 15 is like an article of clothing. God um, has, has us uh, understand from Hebrews 1.12 that the Lord is eternal, uh, but the, the, the earth is, is temporary. And you're going to say, why is He saying this? Well, because it says, and you will fold them up like a garment, like a covering. You will fold them up, the creation. You will fold up. Or in Psalm 104, verse number 6. I'm just going to race there so you don't have to try to follow me. Psalm 104, verse number 6, says this, You covered, this is the foundations of the earth you laid so it should not be moved forever. You covered it with the deep, this is sea, the the oceans, as with a garment. As with a garment. That's the same word that is used in verse 15 for a covering. So it's like a piece of some kind of covering or clothing. So the hair is like an article of clothing, to be worn in a way that matches the gender of the person and uh, separate from the the hat or the shawl or the veil that is referred to in the other parts of the chapter as a covering. That is to be worn as an additional sign in this cultural context, an, an additional sign of her femininity and the matter of authority. Now, it occurred to me while I was writing my notes, but I didn't put this in my notes. So let me just say it here now. When I know that in the world now, the idea of sex and gender are distinguished. Are you familiar with that? That sex is biological, that gender is cultural, that there is a cultural construct, that males have certain typical practices or ways of doing things and Women have certain different ways of doing things or, or things, and those are enculturated, not biological. And so the confusion is they've taken those terms and they have separated them out, and then they're allowing the biology to change the practice so that a male in biology could act like a female in gender. And there's all this fluidity, fluid gender construct that's happening. That's not biblical. That's not biblical. Of course, there are cultural aspects, but those cultural aspects arise from God's creation and from the biology and the differences that are ingrained in us. So, when I use those terms, sex and gender, I'm not really making that humongous differentiation between them. Okay, So, just understand that's my use of the terminology which would be considered sloppy by academics in this field of gender studies, but it actually comes from our understanding of the Bible as the authority, not gender studies programs at 
secular universities. Okay. Now, another question that comes up is, is the meaning of the word head always the same in the passage? And the answer to that is simply no, it's not. Uh, if you look at verse 3, the word head there is used in what, we, what I'll call a metaphorical sense. It's the sense of a personal authority relationship. You know, who is the head of this department? You know, who is the one over all the people that are working in this department? That's a metaphorical use of the word head. But other times in this chapter, the word head, same exact word in Greek, just like it is in English, is, uh, you know, I have a headache. Okay, it's in my head, which is on my neck. Okay, the literal use of the word head. So some, you have to sort those out, and maybe sometime you could write out the chapter or type it out and put head for your head in lowercase and head for like the head of the department or the head of the you know, authority in like uppercase or something and try to decide which, which uh, one applies to each word head in the chapter. It's an interesting exercise. Okay, a third question. I, I received this question. Can men and women minister in similar ways in the church? Can men and women minister in similar ways in the church? And the answer, short answer from this passage, limited to this passage, is yes, they can. Okay, They can minister in similar ways in the two ways that are listed in the chapter. What are those two ways? Praying and prophesying. Okay, Those two ways. Other passages of Scripture fill out the details to make it clear that teaching and authority is vested in the leadership, in the male leadership of the church, I should say. That is in my notes. Good. In the male leadership of the church. Women may pray, but they are not exercising authority over the congregation. They could prophesy too when that gift was active, but that gift is not active today. So, uh, they can't, no one can have that gift at all in this day and age. But a woman could not hold the office of pastor, teacher, or act in that capacity in, as adult, over adults in the church. Does that make sense? So praying, women can pray. We're not saying women can't pray. Of course they can pray. They can pray in the church. They can pray at home. They can pray in their families. Okay, well, don't, don't read the text wrongly that way. The, the assumption is that women will participate in prayer and they will do so in a way that highlights or at least doesn't muddy their position in the church and their role uh, under God in these, according to these instructions. Now, another question I received is this. What is considered short hair and what is considered long hair? Now, in the last message, I resisted offering a measurement of inches on a ruler for that. Uh, the point is that I tried to make is that generally across all time and all cultures, generally women's hair, women's hair is longer than men's hair. It is kept worn and styled in a distinct manner to highlight the woman's womanness. Okay, that was not a word of my spell checker, by the way, so I had to put a dash in there to get it to be happy. This is understood intuitively and should be maintained by faithful Christians. Now, when I say intuitively, unfortunately, it's not as intuitive as you might like to think because the society has been busily tearing down the intuition of people as it's built into them from birth 
starting in preschool, really preschool, elementary school, middle school, certainly high school and college, those things are torn down. The people are working very hard to eliminate the design of God and the nature of men and women from them and really causing all kinds of confusion. We have to maintain the distinctions between the male and the female. And so the intuition comes back to us as we get regenerated and we go back to the the image and nature that we are when God created us and we can understand those things more clearly. We don't we got we kind of get in other words unconfused from the ways that the world has has confused us. Another question I received is this, is the proper length of hair determined by the opposite gender? Now, I don't know why I got this question. I'm just telling you I got this question from somebody, so I'm answering the question, okay? Um, and I answered this way. So, is the proper length determined? So, you know, is the length of a woman's hair, how, how it's supposed to be, is that determined by a male, a man? Not exactly. Let me explain why I say that. The issue of length is determined by God's Word, not by people, not by... Uh, human authorities. The exact length, as we said, is somewhat driven by cultural and practical matters. Uh, I, I kind of chuckled as somebody mentioned last week, and we've kind of observed this. One of the one of the things that people really wanted to do back about April May was to get a haircut. So practical matters may uh, intrude themselves into this area, and uh, you may have bushier hair. Uh, gentlemen than what you would like, like I had for the last couple of weeks, and uh, or it may your, your hair may grow longer than you may have liked, or the split ends may not you know be being trimmed off as quick as you want because you haven't been able to get to the salon. So there are factors, you know. Maybe maybe it's uh, the pandemic, maybe poverty, maybe uh, other factors have caused that you know the hairstyle will be a little bit different or even a little bit longer, both for men and for women. But the distinction must be maintained. It's hard to even explain in some way. Like you kind of, I kind of scratch my head and say, if a guy came up to me with flowing long hair and said, "Should I get this cut off?" My immediate answer would be, "Yeah, make yourself look like a man." Okay, let the women have the beautiful long hair. But then he would say, well, why? Read your Bible. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it's hard to explain to somebody because, and, and here's the illustration. It's like having a debate on, um, well, on anything, on creation and evolution. Okay? The creationist is like an elephant. And the evolutionist is like uh, a whale. And they talk to each other and they're going to have a debate. Okay? But the whale lives on land. I'm sorry, the whale, does, the, whale, the whale lives on the ocean. The elephant lives on land. Okay, you're with me because I, 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 I confused myself. So they go about this debate and they're talking to each other and they're arguing and, 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 and the, the elephant is kicking up dust with his trunk and this guy's slapping his tail on the water and causing all kinds of commotion. And by the end of the debate, you know what's happened? Nothing. Because this guy didn't cross over to this platform or this guy didn't cross over to this platform. In other words, when you're a creationist, 
you don't abandon your creationist principles and come over here and say, okay, I'm going to pretend I'm an evolutionist now. And this guy, of course, is never going to, unless he gets saved, is never going to move over here. So the debate is useless because you don't consider the, the things underlying. So, you know, the presuppositions and so on. So the person who says, you know, uh, you know, a worldly person, should I, should I, you know, cut my hair if I'm a man? Well, yeah, the answer is yes, but, you know, he's over here in the ocean and I'm over here on the land and we're never going to understand each other until he comes to understand the Word of God and embrace it for himself and be saved. And, and then by and by, he'll understand and just the, the intuition will come back. So, that's the, the, the authority is God's Word. Now, I said not exactly does the opposite gender determine your appearance or hair length. But in this sense, you could say that it does happen that way. You know, if your husband tells you that you should strive to look more feminine or have a little longer hairstyle, do that. If your wife or your parents tell you, gentlemen, that you are not allowed to have long hair or look like a girl, that's okay for me to say that, isn't it? In this context? Sure is by you. Yeah. I mean, that's just how we... you got to talk plain. Okay? I know I said plain. That's how we do it. Um, you know, then if, the, if your parents tell you that, you need to get a haircut. That's all. Uh, so in a sense, yeah, people do influence that because they're, they're the onlookers. Now, there's another one. This is a very interesting question. Exodus 29. Exodus 29. I'll go there. You can if you want. Uh, this question came up. A real gotcha. Exodus 29. Then you shall take the garments, put the tunic on Aaron, this is verse 5, and the robe of the ephod, the ephod, the breastplate, and gird him with the intricately woven band of the ephod. You shall put the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. And so the question came, well, why is it not okay to wear a head covering in the church for a man, but it's okay for him, for a guy to wear the turban in the Old Testament uh, time? So let me comment on that. You'll see uh, back in chapter 28, verse 36, the purpose of this turban. You shall also make a plate of pure gold. This is uh, Ezekiel, or Exodus rather, 28:36. Make a plate of pure gold and engrave it like the engraving of a signet. Holiness to the Lord. Okay, so this is, this is probably like a, a big coin or something like that. And you shall put on it a blue, put it on a blue cord that it may be on the turban and it shall be on the front of the turban. So it shall be on Aaron's forehead that Aaron may bear the iniquity of the holy things which the children of Israel hallow and all their holy gifts. And it shall always be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. So, you have this turban, you have this little signet thing tied on with a blue cord on his forehead. And that was a physical reminder to him that he was the interface. Listen to this. This is heavy. The high priest is the interface between the iniquitous Israeli people and the holy God. He's bearing their iniquity Going in to serve the Lord, do all these sacrifices, all the, you know, incense, all this stuff, all the time. 
in the Old Testament era, the only way you got to God was to go through a temple, through the temple, the one temple in Jerusalem, through the priesthood system. Now we can come to God directly through Jesus Christ. What a blessing. We don't have to worship at a particular temple or a particular tabernacle or location. But at that time, this was his role. And this turban was not worn by all the men or all the priests. Now, there are no high priests today, so you don't have to worry about wearing turbans or not in church. Um, But this was for a specific purpose to cover his head and hold that signet on there with the blue cord to remind him and the people that he was bearing their iniquity before God. What a heavy job that was. Now, so I, I put that in the category of a special case directed by God for this one man. It's not a general teaching. Um, it's kind of like the Lord said, make no images, no idols, no statues. And then what do you find inside the Holy of Holies? But those grand seraphs, seraphim that are there, covering over with their wings the Holy of Holies, the mercy seat of God. And He, he allowed that special case. He gave that to them for that purpose to mark it out as a specially protected area. And the people of Israel should not have, and I don't know that they ever did, worship those seraphs as if the seraphs were God. They understood those were just guardian angel, figures of guardian angels of God's holiness. And uh, if you see Isaiah chapter 6, oh, think of that passage. The angels crying out, Holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty, guarding His holiness, covering their feet, because God is so holy, covering their eyes because they cannot look upon Him. Yeah, and uh, this is this is the role of the of the of Aaron, the, the high priest. There are other times in the Old Testament, however, when guys would wear coverings when they were grieving. Men would. David wore a covered head when he was grieving. Uh, that's in Second Samuel 15, and also Jeremiah 14. I'll let you look at those verses sometimes. So. Other times in the later Old Testament, a turban seems to be an indication of normal daily life not associated with grieving. So what this indicates to me is that there was not a uniform practice throughout the entire history of the nation of Israel. Are you with me? In other words, their culture also changed. Now, what do Jewish men wear today? A skull cap, a head covering, a a yarmulke or a yarmulke as it's called more quickly, or uh, or skull cap, kippa, they wear. And so, they have that practice. Why? As a sign of respect and fear to God. That's the cultural practice at that time for that. Now, if, if, one were to, if, if a Jewish man were to get saved and come here, I might be inclined, based on my current understanding of the passage, to say that he should not wear his head covering. It's, he's different now than he was before. But I could probably be convinced otherwise, I'm thinking, because we're, I'm making the argument that it's not the head covering, it's the sign of authority that's the issue. That's the timeless principle here. Okay? That's the timeless principle. Now, let's go back to 1 Corinthians and look at verse 2 because there's another issue here. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2 now. What I, what I, how I structured this message is basically just answer all the questions that I got from last time first. Now come back to where we left off before. 
And that is that we didn't address the kind of bookends of the passage. There are two verses that don't kind of fit in with the rest of them. And I want to address those. Verse 2 says, Now I praise you, brothers, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. So he's encouraging the believers. They've, they've followed what he taught to them before. But my focus here is to think about the word traditions because traditions is a, are a funny thing. These traditions that Paul talks to us about are available to us in the Bible. They are recorded in written form. Written form. So that we have them without error over all the centuries since they were written down. Now this is important. When you need a record of something, you always think of uh, put it in writing. Right? Uh, you know, have a paper ballot. Uh, have a notary sign this document. You have to have a paper contract. You have to have a real tangible thing that has a record on it of what uh, you know, happens so that it can't be changed like a will or a trust or a testament. You have to have it on paper. Reduce it to writing. Put it down so that it's clear. A law, it can't just be an oral law or like a judge can come along and just change it whenever he feels no, the law is written down for a reason, so there'll be a static, standard representation of that. And so that's what God's done with His Bible. He didn't pass it down to us by oral tradition, because you can be sure that oral tradition would be embellished, added to, subtracted from, changed, twisted, corrupted, and all the rest of it. The written record is so important, and that's what Paul put down. He taught it to the people, then he's reminding them of it here, and we have it all in the New Testament for us, for the church. But people are so confused about the idea of tradition. So I want to un- talk about confusion today. I want to unconfuse you about that. Three kinds of tradition. One, the kind we're talking about here, which is apostolic teaching, which is reduced to written form in the Bible. So, for instance, Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 2, Verse number 15, Therefore, brothers, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. Okay, By word means by apostolic teaching, by the mouth of the Apostle Paul himself, or by our letter. Okay, So these are binding traditions upon Christians. That is, they're just Christian teaching. That all, that's all it means. Then there are two other kinds of tradition. One is cultural events. You know, we have a tradition of Thanksgiving on the last Thursday of the month and December 25th, Christmas, and and Easter, whenever it comes around. You hardly figure out what that's going to be without looking at a calendar. Um, And so on. We have those traditions of cultural events, ministries that we've done in the church that come about every year. These are neutral. They're really... They could come or go. We could change the dates. We could not do them. We could do a different one. Whatever. doesn't matter. Then there are another kind of traditions called the traditions of men. Look at Mark 7 if you would please. Mark chapter 7. Mark 7 starting in verse number 5. So there's tradition in the sense of 
now reduced to writing the Bible. There's tradition like, you know, holiday traditions. And then there are the traditions of men. Verse 5 of Mark 7. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? You know, this is a pandemic, man. You've got to wash your hands before you eat. No, that wasn't the case. They were, they were talking about ceremonial hand washing. Okay? You've got to do this to be clean before God. He answered, Jesus answered and said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? Ouch. That, he talks directly, doesn't he? That's plain talk there. As, if, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Man, you can say all you want to say, but if, you're, if your feet are pointing in the other direction and you're moving in the other direction, just forget about what your mouth says. That's just deceit. Laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men and the washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things you do. He said to them, all too well, you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is korban, that is a gift to God. That's a Korban is a transliteration of a Hebrew word. So that was what he's saying is you're making this kind of pronouncement. Oh, it's a gift to God now. I can't help you anymore. I don't have any money. Then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. In other words, you take this kind of sophistry to an extent where you just, you know, words undo the meaning of the commandments. You made up new traditions. And he said, many such things you do. Paul was familiar with traditions. He said, I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I was in all of the traditions of my fathers. Galatians 1.14 Or Colossians 2.8 Why are you continually caught up in the traditions of men? You know, in the touch not, taste not, handle not, all these things that have no value to restrain your sinful nature. They're just external commands. You cannot, you cannot survive. You, can, you cannot thrive by just living by commands. You have to have it in your heart. It has to be an internal desire to follow God's will. So these are traditions of men. They're useless to mortify the flesh. Useless to advance us in spiritual growth because they're not based on Christ. They're not based on the work of the Spirit. They're not based on the completed work of Christ. These are bad traditions, flat out wrong. And Paul knew very well of these things. And he was like, I can't, I can't go there anymore, okay? They don't do anything for me. Do you have to wash your hands before you eat a loaf, a loaf, a piece of bread to be right with God? Not at all. Not at all. Uh, Jesus said, it's not what goes in that defiles, it's what comes out that defiles. Murder, adulteries, fornications, evil speech, bad words, all manifestations of a heart that's dirty within you. It didn't get dirty by eating a piece of bread with unwashed hands. It got dirty because you're a sinner. You're wicked and have gone astray from God from the womb. All right, so 
Paul's teaching here about men and women does have a little bit of a cultural aspect, as we've mentioned, but also biblical tradition in that sense. But it's not, we're not talking about traditions of men here. So, he's, he appreciates what they've done, but there's something that is lacking. Now, jump, drop down to the end of the section. Go to 1 Corinthians 11 now, verse 16. Verse 16. He says, But if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. This, this is so genius of God to put this in. Issues like this invariably raise strife. Because some in, in a church, maybe not like ours, I won't accuse our own church, but in a church that has a broader array of perspectives on this issue of men and women and feminist uh, egalitarianism and all that, if I went into that place and I preached this message, I could be tomatoed out of the place. You know, rotten eggs in the whole nine yards. Yeah, hopefully not. It takes a lot of gasoline to get the tar off. <laughs> um, Paul says we don't have we don't have that kind of tradition in, in the churches. There's no contentious contentiousness about this issue. You hear the Word of God, and this is what James was saying in James chapter 1. He said, be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. The first thing that a secular feminist would want to say, would want to do in a message like this is stand up and shout at me. The Bible says, quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. That quick to shout at the speaker is exactly the opposite of that. That's being angry, not understanding the whole context, not understanding Christianity, not understanding regeneration, not understanding that you're a sinner, that you need to be saved. I mean, this is serious. It's sad too. Somebody that stands up and says, but I know better than God. That is dangerous, my friends, because if you retain that attitude for the rest of your life, you will stand before God as, as your judge. And He will ask you, what have you done with Jesus? Mm-hmm. Nothing. You'll be judged by your works then. And how is God going to find those? Always lacking perfect righteousness and you will be sent to an eternal punishment away from God. So it's not, it is a sad situation, a sad matter when somebody has that kind of attitude. And the Apostle Paul is saying here, the, the apostles, the churches, don't have a practice or habit. It's not their standard MO to, to uh, be upset about Paul's teaching. They receive it. They gladly take it. Why? Because as we read in 1 Corinthians 14, these are the words of God, the words of Jesus Christ. So, it is not acceptable behavior in the church to object to apostolic teaching and directives. Most of the churches in Paul's experience accepted this teaching as from God and submitted to it without quarrel. Corinth should do the same. Rejecting the teaching, on the other hand, is unacceptable to God, but women sometimes rebel against this doctrine. The patriarchy, remember last time. Not Always because they want pure equality, by the way, remember? They want matriarchy. 
But then also some men oppose this teaching, either because they think they're supporting the women by practicing the feminist philosophy, or they're afraid to displease the woman. Can't do that. But maintaining the distinction between male and female in appearance and roles in the church and home life is the essence of obedience to this passage. This does not mean that women must necessarily wear head coverings today, but the proper roles are what must be clearly observed in the church, whatever the cultural norms might be. Now, let me uh, jump ahead. I think this will be in your notes on the fifth page to some of the reasons that God gives for this to us. The first reason is very briefly stated in my notes, and that is in verse 3. This is because of the order that exists in the Godhead. God is a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they have for somehow seen fit to arrange themselves in an order where the Son says, I do all those things that please the Father. The Father sent me into the world. As the Father sent me, then the Father and I send the Spirit to you. So there's, a, there's like a functional hierarchy in the Godhead. Not ontological. What I mean by that is it's not that the Father is greater than the Son and the Son is greater than the Spirit. And the Father is also greater. It's not that. Okay, they are equal in deity, equal in attributes, equal in worthy, uh, worthiness to be worshipped. Uh, how else can I say it? They are all, but all three of them sharing the one and same essence of the one true and living God. But they have seen to it to arrange themselves in a functional way to carry out the work that they have. And so this to me is the kind of the be-all and end-all, if you will, of this whole issue of men and women. Because what you see is that God is, the Father and the Son, for example, are equal. Equal, equal, equal. Men and women also are equal, 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 but they have different roles to play. Bearing children, there's only one gender that can do that. Okay? Being a father, there's only one gender that can do that. And so on and so forth. God has assigned those roles and maybe He's just simply assigned them to see if we'll follow them. Like, will we obey? Or do we got to grit our teeth and say, God, I'm going to do it a different way. That's what the sin nature does, doesn't it? Always wants to go the other way. The order of the Godhead. And then secondly, why all of this? Why all these differences in, in the roles of men and women? Because of the glory of God. And I say it that way. I can say it another way. In other words, we don't want to dishonor God. Look at verse 4. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head, that is his literal head covered, dishonors his head, that is Christ, his authority, his relational head. So this now raises the critical issue of dishonor, of honor and shame as used by the Apostle Paul. The idea here of dishonor is to put to shame or to humiliate. This is a critical idea. In fact, so critical that if you study missiology, you must study honor, shame, cultures. So you understand the mindset 
of cultures. They're somewhat diff- unlike ours. The thinking is different than ours. Uh, and I haven't fully vetted that whole issue out to, to understand it well, but there's very good and valuable information there. The idea to put to shame or to, to humiliate. Very important idea. Even though in our natural selves, we don't want to even think about being humiliated. Think about something in your life that you did that has embarrassed you or humiliated you because of how morally bad or how foolish it was. Do you want me to share an illustration? I'm not going (laughs) to. Okay. Uh, This humiliation, this embarrassment, this shame is the same feeling that a man should have if his head were covered as a woman in this culture. He should be... He would say, I cannot be seen in this. You know that feeling? I could never go out looking like that. Or, you mean, you mean guests are going to arrive at our home in five minutes? I haven't cleaned it yet. They can't see this place. You know, a mortified humiliation at, at the, you know, what you feel like. It's, it's shame. It's, it's some kind of dishonor. The church observing a man who is doing that would also have that uncomfortable feeling like, why is he dressed like that? You know, uh, He should have felt ashamed if he did that. But whether he had the feeling or not, here's the, here's the key thing. You don't have to feel ashamed to be a, a shame. You know what I'm saying? You can be an objective... It's like, do you have to feel like you're a sinner, to be a sinner? No, you can have a cold, calculating conscience that suppresses the truth and unrighteousness, and yet you're objectively guilty before God. You're, you're, you're going along, happy-go-lucky, you know, you know, living your life, and you're a guilty, wicked sinner. Uh, you don't have to have the feeling of shame to be a shame or a dishonor to God. To have long hair if you're a man, or to cover your head in this culture in prayer. It's not, it, this is even deeper than, you know, how we think of uh, culturally today. If, 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 you know, you're several guys in a group and you, somebody says, let's offer prayer, and some of them are wearing ball caps, what do they do? Off with the cap, okay? Or do you do that for the national anthem as well? Used to. Yeah, right. We're losing, we're losing the shame. We're losing the sense of honor that comes with that. So, that's one thing to, you know, to take off your cap for a prayer. But it's an even deeper dishonor to God when you do things that, dis, that, that discombobulate the sexes. It's not just like forgetting to put your hand on your heart for the national anthem or or you can't stand for the anthem, or you forget to take off your hat when you're praying because you're in such deep prayer or whatever it is. This is deep dishonor to God to mix and confuse male and female. The two must be kept distinct. So a violation of the created distinction between genders is the issue that brings shame. Long hair or head covering on a man brings the shame. Short hair or shaved head for a woman or no head covering in this context brings shame. A woman humiliation. I mean, isn't that 
the case if a, if a, a poor, dear woman gets cancer, chemotherapy, all her hair goes away. That is not a happy day for her, is it? Do you understand that? You can think, I mean, how could I go out bald? I've got to get a, I've got to, I've got to get a wig, something, wear a hat, something. Um, now, we're dropped into a culture when, when we're born that has certain kind of practices, you know, hairstyles, women hairstyles, men's hairstyles and all that. And so, if they're, if they're you know, distinct, then fine. We may have to be somewhat more countercultural than the culture maintains in attire and hair and all of that. Um, but you see over centuries how the culture can shift and change and things are different. And you have to apply the principle in that culture into which you're dropped as a child or into which you move. So, that kind of shame upon a man or a woman. And I think you, maybe I could say it this way. A woman, being having without having a head covering, praying before God would be shameful like being uncovered on some other part of the body. Like, I'll put it this way. She would feel that her head was naked. That word naked I'm using to evoke kind of a, a feeling that you say, oh, I shouldn't be that way. I, I, I naturally understand that I shouldn't have that part of my body uncovered when I'm going out or I'm praying before God. She's... If she were doing that, she'd be dishonoring her husband or father by mixing and confusing the male with the female. And she was this, this covering was a, a symbol of authority. You see that from verse 10? So if, she's, if she gets rid of that, she's saying, I'm not under any authority. That was the issue. I'm independent. I'm, I'm my own woman. I'm rebellious. In those days, well, she could be dissing her husband or her father. In those days, a woman who shaved her head or cropped it close was a feminist or a prostitute. That's not appropriate for Christians to look like. All right, what next? Um, Let's go down to letter D on page 6, just in view of the time. Because of the angels... What about this? Because of the angels. Um, and if you've got the rest of the notes there, you can read those and, and look at them offline. Let me illustrate the angelic business here by using another passage that has not to do with angels. Colossians 2.5. Paul says in Colossians 2.5, For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to observe your good order, and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. Paul is absent, but he sees from afar, and not in some kind of mystical way, but he's heard what's going on in the church there. And he says, hey, I'm with you folks. Just like in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 5, he says, I'm not there, but let's together judge this person who has removed that, this person from the church who has committed immorality and correct this issue in the church. So he's there with them in, in spirit, so to speak. He's observing from afar what they're doing. People probably uh, observe from afar what Fellowship Bible Church is doing. Are they maintaining the faith? Are they being strong? Are they, are they uh, following Christ? But there is another um, group that observes the church. And those are the angels. Did you ever think of that? 
Angels are observers of the earthly realm. And they can observe whether a church is in order or out of order, whether its members have right attitudes towards each other and toward God. They can observe if the men are following the instructions that are given to them. They can observe if women are following the instructions relevant to them. And so it's important for us to exhibit obedience to God in this area of submission and authority in order to be a good testimony to the angels. That's because of the angels. Think of how disgusted the holy angels must be when the church of all places is out of order. The church is not following God's Word. That church, God, when are you going to send us down to that church and straighten that place out? The angels say. In my sanctified imagination at least. And then if it offends the angels, think about how it offends the holy God who created those angels and the Spirit and the Lord Jesus who purchased with His own blood that church that persists in disobedience. There are a lot of people in a lot of churches, my friends, who sit around and think they're doing God's service. But the reality is the angels and their God and their Christ is displeased with them because they think they have, but they have not. And that is a sad testimony as well. But anyway, we have to stop there for lack of time. I trust this has been somewhat helpful to you. This is, as I said, one of the most difficult portions of the New Testament to address um, and understand, but hopefully that has helped you. If you're a woman and you're wondering, do I have to wear a head covering at Fellowship Bible to pray? No. But you have to be rightly related to the man in your life, your father or your husband, if if you still have. And you have to have that symbol of authority, that you don't walk in here dressed like a woman of the world. Okay? Men, you come in here dressed like men and you act like men. You don't act effeminately, but you act like men. That's what God calls us to do. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank You for Your loving kindness to us. Help these words to form and fashion and shape our thinking about issues of culture that are raging right now out in the world. And Lord, we know that the debate between them is is like the elephant and the whale. Unless the whale learns to walk on land, so to speak, he will never understand the landlubber's life. And so the unbeliever will never understand the believer's life and thinking until he gets saved. We pray that will be the case for any of those that are here today that need to be saved or online or whoever may run into this message later on. In Jesus' name. Amen.